In John 21, we have evidence that Christ is really risen from the dead. He is about his redemptive work in the life of the disciples because the whole ministry of Christ is about restoration. He said, what's restoration about? Well, the fact is when God created the heavens and the earth, you go back to Genesis 3, you see that God created the heavens in such a way and the earth that he created Adam and Eve and placed them there in a beautiful, harmonious place where they can really enjoy life. He said, you know, there's 150,000 things you can do, and there's one thing you cannot do. That's eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, what do Adam and Eve do? They're duped into eating of that fruit that they were told, don't do this. And as a result, all of creation, all of humanity, were thrown into the vortex of sin, and we've struggled with sin ever since. But when Christ died on the cross, he redeemed us from that vortex of sin and said there's a way out to have a relationship with your Father once again. And so in John 21, the disciples are involved in this whole story. And we look in verse 1 to verse 3a. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or another term of Tiberias would be the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. Jesus wants, John wants us to know that this was a manifestation of the Lord coming to them a third time. He will be calling his disciples and us back to the purpose for which he has saved us. He, Christ really wants us to be fishers of men. There's been a lot of stress lately in the disciples' lives. Judas' surprising betrayal of Christ. Peter's three-time denial of Jesus. The trial of Christ. The crucifixion. The odd resurrection experience. These disciples were really fried. They didn't know what to expect because, isn't that thrilling? Well, it was a little over the top. And so Peter, when things go wrong, does one thing that many of us often do. Let's go back to doing something I can do the thing I did before I met Christ, let's go back to what was comfortable. Let's go back to what brought me a sense of purpose in life. I'm going back to fishing. Truth is, all of us at one point or another have put our faith in Christ. Maybe, maybe not. And sometimes in following Christ, we've, we found there's distinctive challenges that comes when it comes to following Jesus Christ. Because sometimes he'll challenge you to do things that you don't want to do. Sometimes he'll not only challenge you to do things you don't want to do, he'll point out things in your life you don't like. In the process, you say, well, I don't know if I'm really buying into this Jesus thing. I don't know if I'm really going to follow what Christ really wants in my life. I'm going to go back to what I used to do. Because that seemed to work. But the challenge is that when we go back, it doesn't work. Let's go fishing? Really? Maybe he thought that something familiar would restore what was once lost deep within. The fishing expedition and dialogue that ensues does not read like the lives of men on a spiritually empowered mission, says Dr. D.A. Carson. Notice the end of verse 3. So they went out that night... And what's the phrase at the very end of verse 3? They caught nothing. Now I want you to wake up and hear this really loud and clear. 
when you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you go back to doing what you think I used to do in the past before I met Christ, the end result will be a sense of emptiness. There will be a sense of loss. There will be something like something's really wrong here because once you've met the Savior and you've walked with Him and you strive to live the Christian life and you go back, it leads to that innate sense of emptiness like, what's wrong? Why don't I feel that joy? Why don't I feel the happiness? Because once you belong to Christ, you can't go back and act like it's normal again. Now, oftentimes people think to themselves, well, I can go back to the way I used to live and everything will be okay. The only way that works is you continue on in that sinful style of living, living well with Christ, and you deaden your heart so that it's no longer receptive to what the Holy Spirit of God is saying. It's a stalwart reminder to all of us. So we're back to our old ways before our encounter with Christ. The end result is always emptiness, lack of fulfillment. Funny, isn't it, that when we go back to what we think is familiar, perhaps comfortable, there's a deep sense like something's not right. Because you can pursue the things that you thought used to bring you joy. You can pursue the things that you thought would give you a sense of satisfaction, and you realize that life apart from Christ is empty. But yet you keep pressing on without him. So here's the picture. If you step away from the calling that God has placed on your life, and you go in the opposite direction, you go back to the place of self-will and self-effort, you may think you can accomplish a lot, but you might end up a failure. Disobedience to Christ always leads to failure. It's just a simple principle. So when God calls you and prepares you and places you into ministry and you turn your back and walk away from it, you will fail at what you do and that's exactly what happened here. The disciples have been called to be fishers of men, to follow after Christ. And they go back to doing what they thought was going to bring joy and peace because they were so distraught and they didn't know how to figure things out. And they said, I don't know about following Jesus really worth it all. They go back and they go back to what they were really good at and it says they came up empty. See, the Lord does not reward disobedience. And just at that distinct time, they've been fishing all night Jesus is standing on the shore and he's watching his men, the one he's invested three years of his life with. They're going back to the old ways. But who's standing on the shoreline watching this whole thing go down? It's Jesus. They don't realize it's him because John is writing this after the story took place. He's watching them. And he calls out from the shoreline. Look in chapter 21, 4 to 6. It says, early in the morning... Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? What's the response? No. The disciples' one-word answer reflects their frustration. What'd you catch? Nothing. When Jesus was asking a question, he wasn't looking for information as to like whether they really caught. Do you think he really knew? Yeah, I think he really knew they had got nothing. He just wanted them to acknowledge and recognize their own insufficiency at that state in their life. Guys, you're going out there without me. What do you caught? Nothing. It's good for sometimes to just acknowledge, 
So what's my life apart from Christ led to? Not much. Tried to do things my own strength. Tried to do things my own way. And sometimes God says, would you just acknowledge and say, recognize, you know what, you know what, Lord? I've been trying to do life on my own terms, and it's not working. And God says, I know it's not, but you need to recognize that. See, in the upper room, he said to him in John 15, 5, these words, apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't that hard? Isn't that hard for us to understand that sometimes? Because so much we're brought up with this sense of understanding that I can do it on my own. It's a yeah, I've, I've been like that. But you ever have uh, little children or how about grandchildren? Like 11 of them. And sometimes I was helping the, one of the boys put together a railroad track with a model train railroad. And I was watching him do, putting it together. And they weren't doing it right. Because if they don't do it right, it's not going to work. You got it? And so I offered to help. And what words do you think I heard from those little grandkids? I can do it on myself. Yeah. And you feel so frustrated, but I thought, pull back. Let them figure it out for themselves. Opa. Dutch back, okay? Opa, it's not working. Mm-hmm. I know that's not working. Let me help you. Okay. When they've come to an end of themselves, when they've come to the end of their role because they really want the train to work. But have you realized in your own life that you were insufficient and incapable of living it without the guidance and sufficiency of Jesus Christ? You can't, as a Christian, live life on your own terms. The road that leads home to the Savior is our acknowledgement of sin and a desire to obey His commands. You can make up excuses to why you should or shouldn't serve God. You will never see Him work in a mighty way in your life until you do. Peter thought he could do one thing for sure, and that's fish. He can't anymore because the Lord won't let the fish near his net, says John MacArthur. God says, you're mine. I bought you with a price. Guess what? You're not getting the fish because I'm in charge. He said, well, is God playing fair there? <laughs> yeah, because you know what? When we give our lives over to him, we say he gets the title deed. He gets to call the shots. He gets to challenge us as to how we're to live our lives. And that means that as a, a born-again believer who puts his faith in Christ, there needs to be that attitude of submission in my life every day that God needs to be the Lord of my life every single day. Is he Lord? Absolutely. Do I need to submit to that? The answer is yes, because unless I submit to his leadership in my life, my life will end up empty, unfulfilled. In John 21, 6, he, Christ says to the disciples while standing on the shore, he says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to handle the net because of the large number of fish. They caught so much fish, it's shocking. But along with that comes automatically a memory. What's that memory? Hey, dudes, it's deja vu. This is like all over again. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. We're not going to read all the verses. It says, when he had finished speaking, and speaking of Christ, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. 
This is at the very beginning stages of his time with the disciples three years back. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Because it's you, Jesus, we'll do what you say. We've worked hard. And when they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to the partners on the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat so full they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And a little later on, Jesus says, Men, from now on, you're not going to be fishing for fish. You're going to be fishing for men instead. And all of a sudden, this deja vu moment, early in the morning, third time he pierced them, they begin to realize, it's Jesus, because he's the one that controls all this. And the disciple in chapter 21, verse 7, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Duh. As soon as Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumps into the water to see Jesus. He jumps in the water because he wants to get close to the Lord. It's interesting to note that he does this in spite of his recent denials of Christ. Because sometimes when we screw up, sometimes we sin. And we sometimes we not only sin, we, can, we confess our sin to Christ. We try to make it right. There's a sense, there's apprehension in our lives that maybe I don't want to get close to God because I failed and because I've screwed up. Even though I've confessed Him, I don't deserve to be close to Him. But not Peter. Not Peter, I'm going to walk in the water. Not Peter, I'm going to stand up against all the different issues. Not Peter, who draws a sword in and, and Jesus' defense. No, he, he has this bold compulsion to run to be with Jesus. You see, Jesus had met with Christ on the resurrection day and they restored that relationship. And because that relationship was restored, he can run to be with Christ. We need to remember not to allow our previous failures and sin to haunt us and keep us from getting close to Christ even after we fail. Because we need to understand that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and we became believers in Christ by understanding that our sin, past, present, and future were covered under the blood of Jesus, that we have full access. All we need to do is restore fellowship when we sin. It says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the idea there is that when I confess my sin to Christ, I have full access into his very presence. Not because of anything I've done, because he did it all for me. And so Peter does that. You see, when we experience God's grace in our lives, it has an impact on others. In John 21, 8 and 9, it says, The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, who were not far from shore, about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. It's quite the picture. It's early morning, Sea of Galilee. The smell of baked fish, fresh baked bread, and Jesus is going to serve breakfast. I'm in. Are you? So, well, if it was, maybe it was a bacon, maybe. But anyways, fish was the going food of the day. It's a little different from the Last Supper, where they'd argued who was the greatest, and where they all had said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, Lord. The intriguing aspect, as I mentioned a while back, is that there's only two coal fires mentioned in the Bible. 
the coal fire at Caiaphas' judgment hall, and the coal fire by the lake. The coal fire by Caiaphas' judgment hall was the place where Jesus Christ had been denied by Peter three times. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. He curses and swears. I don't know the man. And now there's another coal fire. And Jesus is sitting by it. And uh, Jesus says in verses 10 to 12, he said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of a large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. That's where we get the name Big Peter. 153 fish, let's say they were two or three pounds each. A net, 300 pounds plus. And who's the guy that gra grabs a hold and pulls it to shore? Peter, by himself. Big dude. Strong dude. He's a strong guy. He drags in the nets, and yet the net's not torn. It's part of a miracle. Then in chapter 21, 12 to 14, Jesus says to him, come have breakfast. You've been working all night. Breakfast sounds awesome. Now, there's some people here that skip breakfast. That's on you. Me? You're calling me for breakfast? I am there. Five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning. I am there. But notice he says, come have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? And they knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. A repeat of the Lord's table. As they all sit around that campfire on the side of the lake, fish is baked, bread's baked, they're sitting around having dinner with the Savior. And you hear the quietness and stillness. Why? Because they remember. Lord's table. I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll always follow you, Lord. And there's a sense of, I don't know, deep regret perhaps in the disciples' lives because they said they followed him no matter what. And here he is, risen from the dead. They can still see the scars in his hands as he gives them food to eat. It's a quiet breakfast. I'm sure that many thoughts were going through their minds as they sat and ate. I'm sure they remembered what he had done in the past. Peter didn't protest Jesus serving him breakfast as he had done when the, Jesus took the servant's role and washed the disciples' feet. But the point here is have breakfast with Jesus and let him minister to you before you try to serve him. In John 21, 15 to 19, it says, When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The rest of the disciples are being kind of quiet here because Peter is the one getting picked on. He says, yes, Lord, I know I love you. Now, there's some play in the Greek words here. But Jesus, every time he asked the first two times, the Greek word is agapeo, the strongest form of love you can find in the Greek New Testament. And each time Jesus, time Peter responds, he says, Lord, I filio you. He doesn't come back with a strong approach to love towards Christ. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, uh, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I, I love you. I filio you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. See, Peter had denied the Lord three times. And so three times Jesus repeats the essential question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? I think these three questions would have hit Peter like a hammer blow. Three times in a row. Three times, the third time with grief, because it reminded him of his three denials. And Peter affirms, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And so three times Jesus said, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Jesus knew that these questions were going to hurt Peter. It's going to cause pain. But the Lord knows that grieving over our sins is sometimes a necessary part of being restored from the sins to a place of being of service for him. You know, one thing I, I admire about the Savior is that he said he doesn't call Peter out and say, Peter, yes, Lord, you really screwed up. You said you know, you said you were going to deny me and you did. Like, what's wrong with you, dude? He doesn't do that, does he? What he calls him out, he, say, <clears throat> he says, he doesn't address he addresses it in a very different way. What he does say is this three times Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because, folks, here's the issue when you and I sin against a holy God, the issue is not often the times of sin, it's the fact that when we sin, it shows that we really don't love God. And so God's challenge to them is you got to love me. So you can't properly serve the Lord and shrug off sin as no big deal. Because a lot of times we say, you know, I, I can live for God, but I can sin, I can do what I want. It, it's not a big deal, but God says, yeah, it is. Because you can't serve me unless you love me. You can't love me if you're continuing in your sin. And no one can have a deep love for Christ and sustain ministry who doesn't appreciate the awful price he paid to redeem humanity from sin. So we do sin, we need to confess our sin, come clean with God, and feel the grief that our sin has caused our Savior. In John 21, 18 to 19, Jesus says to the disciples, I'll tell you the truth, to Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Peter one day would be crucified. But rather than being crucified like the Lord, he would be crucified upside down. Because he didn't feel to be deserving of the same death as the Savior. And then he says these words to Peter, follow me. See, Jesus proves what Peter has just said. Lord, you know all things. You can see in the future. You know all things. And Jesus knew Peter's future, including how and when he would die. But what's Jesus' command to Peter? Follow me. See, to follow Jesus means bound before him as the rightful Lord and Savior of everything you have. It means seeking his will and direction for your life and submitting to him even before you know what will be done. It means prompt obedience to his commands. See, we yield our lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and seek his will. We'll be prepared for death no matter how it comes. So what's Christ's challenge from this passage to you and I? I don't know where you're at in your Christian walk with Christ, but some of you at one point or another said, have placed your faith and trust in him and you desire to follow him, but you've gotten off track. 
you know you're not where you should be. Does Jesus want to beat you up? <laughs> no, he doesn't. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to call you back into fellowship with him. But the big thing that Jesus is going to ask you is this. Do you love me? So what's this love thing got to do with Jesus so much? Well, actually, if you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, it talks about the different churches, the seven churches that are examined by the Lord Jesus Christ. The very first church in chapter 2 that Jesus addresses in Revelation is the church at Ephesus. He commands the church at Ephesus because he said, you're doing a lot of good things. He said, you're, you're doctrinally on track. You, you look at the, the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the, the, uh, the uh, cult that was trying to uh, find its way into the church. He said, you've judged them. You've done right. But he says, I have this one thing against you as a church. You've left your first love. His words were to that church, repent, repeat, and return. So if you today, at one point in your life, can say, Pastor, I'm sitting right now. Yeah, I used to follow Christ. I used to follow Him. But right now, I'm living life on my terms. And you sense in your life, you feel empty. You're missing something you know the answer. You're ready to. Now what Jesus is saying is, unless you love me, you can't serve me. Because God's not interested in your service for him unless you love him first. See, when you're in love with Christ, it will motivate you to do things that you otherwise would never do. Say, does that really work that way? Uh, yeah, it does. It really does. Because I've noticed when guys are in love with girls, especially if they're a fiancé or the girl they're going to marry or the woman they're married to, when they're in love, they'll do anything, even stupid stuff. When I see a man in love with a woman, some of the things that I see guys do are like, good night. Can you believe that? I know what the common expression is. It's because he's in love. Folks, when you and I are in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, it will motivate us not to do the dumb stuff, <laughs> but to live for him in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm challenging you today to make Jesus first in your life, to commit to following him, to fall in love all over with him. Repent. Say, God, I'm sorry for the way I've lived. I live life on my own terms. And yeah, Lord, I feel empty. And Lord, I need to go back to doing the things I used to do for you. And then, Lord, not only do I need to and then I need to also start seeking to follow you every day of my life. There needs to be a change because eternity for, is forever. This earth isn't. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for your word to our hearts this morning. And Father, I pray for the people that are here today that, Lord, some of us 
Uh, Lord, we've professed to have known you a long time. But for many of us, Lord, uh, I don't know where we're at at times. There's times we look at our lives and recognize, Father God, that uh, we're not where we need to be. And so, Father, I just pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak through their hearts. And my friend, I'm going to call you. I'm going to call on you today to make a public profession of your faith. Some of you, you know, you've you put your faith and trust in Christ, but you've never publicly made a statement about it. You say, no, I, well, how do I do that? Well, just come to the front. Come to the front. I'll greet you. I'll pray with you, and you're going to have a seat in the pew in the front. And we're going to do that while the gals are going to be singing our closing song. But I want this to be between you and Christ. I want you to commit your life to Christ. Say, Lord, I want you to have your way in my life. I want to repent, return to doing what you want me to do. You say, well, Pastor, I'd like to, but uh, man, this is tough. Well, it might be the toughest decision you make, but it's probably going to be the best one of your life. Because Jesus loves you. He died for you. He rose again so that you could be restored to a complete relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So my friend, I'm going to ask you to come forward. So yeah, I, I want to do that today. I want to make a public stand of my commitment to serve Jesus Christ today in front of this congregation so we can all pray for you, so we can encourage you. And you can do that while we sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.